Hi, I'm Vicky Bond, president of the Humane League, and I'm with SoFlow Vegans. Welcome to the SoFlow Vegans podcast. We bring you vegan experts from around the world to talk about health, the environment, animal advocacy, and spreading compassion. It's our passion to help you navigate the vegan lifestyle by listening to the experiences of vegan influencers, doctors, and experts. Thanks for listening. This is the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. And now your host, Sean Russell. And welcome back to another episode of the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. I am your host, Sean Russell. And today we have a guest that their organization we've been involved with in some sort of capacity since we got started back in 2017. And I'm so excited to have their president on our podcast to talk about all things animal rights and vegan and dot, dot, dot. I'm sure we're going to cover a lot of different terrain. Everybody, welcome Vicky Bond to our podcast. Thank you so much, Sean. It's wonderful to be here. Really looking forward to the conversation. So if you guys are a listener to the podcast, and even if you're not, we have a tradition of starting off every podcast with the guest's vegan origin story. And the reason we do this is because In the 100 plus episodes we've done of this podcast, one of the most fascinating parts to me is always how they got started, because really that's at the that's at the crust of what we're doing here with SoFlow Vegans is getting people started on their journey. And even if you are seasoned vegan 10 years plus or however many years plus 30, 60, 70 years plus, hopefully you have people in your life that you probably want to join you on this journey. So these questions and these answers may provide some insight on how they can do it for themselves as well, because everybody's story is different. So with that preamble done, would you mind sharing your vegan origin story? Absolutely. Uh, So I, from as long as I can remember, I wanted to be a vet and I um, loved animals. I just loved animals, wanted to help animals. And so really from a young age, I was in kind of didn't want to be eating animals, but also didn't know anyone didn't who did, who had given up, I should say, and was told by my mom that it would stop my growth. Mm -hmm. And if I wanted to be a vet, I would need to, you know, have all the brain power needed to be able to do that. And so I really put off being becoming vegetarian until I was 14. And actually there was a Christmas day where there was a turkey on the table and my uncle said something like, oh, imagine the size of that turkey when it's alive. And I was just like, I am done. Like I can't, that, that I've been living in that disconnect, like just trying to create this, you know, cognitive dissonance, I guess, around it. And from that moment on, I was like, I, I'm done here. And that was vegetarian. I went on to go to vet school and honestly, I should have gone vegan then because I remember going to a dairy farm and there being, well, no, we went not to a dairy farm, sorry. We went to a a farm where they collected the semen for the artificial insemination of the cows and it was awful. And these bulls lived in tiny pens. They got 20 minutes once a day to get out into this pen. And I was horrified and I was eating cheese and dairy it's still at that point and then I was sort of talked out of it 
I wish I'd been a bit stronger. But then uh, when I left vet school, I went to work at Compassion and Well Farming and I was a researcher there and I was doing a compendium of information so that people would have like the scientific facts to back up the case for why factory farming is so bad. And uh, as I was doing it, I was doing it about laying hens. And I was writing about these conditions at laying hens, regardless of what system they're in, may, may experience. And it was another aha moment of just like, well, the reason I'm not eating animals is because I care about animals. And therefore, if I care about animals, I should also not be eating eggs and dairy. And so that's how I ended up going vegan. And that's probably 12 or so years ago now. Yeah. And it's it's almost like you set up set it up for me to go into some topics that I don't always get a chance to talk about on the podcast. And it's really along the lines of just motivations and that cognitive dissonance and, and that disconnect when it comes to even just vegetarianism and, and animal rights. And the fact that you are where you are today and you, you went through that, but in your advocacy and, your, and the outreach, how does your journey play a role in the way that you communicate with other people? Because you had the information in front of you and you, even from an early age, saw had that connection at some point, but it wasn't until the sequence of events that you decided to make that change. So what have you been able to get from that in terms of speaking to other people so they make that change for themselves? Yeah, there's really important, I think, to approach it with compassion when you're having these conversations. Certainly, I know along the way I've been frustrated by responses I've got or, or whatever that might be. But really, I, I think connecting with your own origin story is really important when you're talking to people, like why you came about to veganism and showing that, you know, for the majority of people, they have consumed meat or dairy products in their lifetime. Some people are lucky enough that they haven't, but majority of us have. And so when we talk about, you know, how we came to it, I think talking about what it motivated you and yourself is really important. And I use that story for, my, for when I communicate with people. I also use the fact that I have been on factory farms. I've been on many different farms from like the highest welfare systems to, to the most horrific factory farms. I've been in slaughterhouses. I even got an, an a poultry welfare slaughter certification. So I can really speak to the science behind these things as well and, and all the research that there is to show that animals suffer in these systems and that there is no such thing as a humane um, slaughter method, just more humane. And, you know, these animals aren't choosing to die. And so connecting with people on things they're interested in is really important. So if it's environmental, there is plenty of things to talk about with environmental impacts and why reducing meat consumption can help. And I also talk about, you know, not necessarily doing it overnight. Even when, you know, it's the classic vegan, like giving up cheese is like the challenge. So, and, and for me, that was the case. And I can empathize a lot with that and say, well, you know, Reduce it over time. And honestly, I mean, the alternatives are infinitely better. I'm sure you know as well, like infinitely better than what we had to experience 20 years ago, 10 years ago. So that also helps. But yeah, just like allowing people to find information we have on our website. We have Eating Veg Cookbook that's got these wonderful recipes. There's Veganuary. I, I love to di direct people to Veganuary because that's like a really great way to get involved. They've got 
huge amount of resources and community there as well. And yeah, so I think really leaning into understanding why people are interested and being gentle in how you go about it. I think it can feel very easy to just be like, how can you not see? <laughs> because once your eyes, once you know the blinkers are taken off for us, it's like that there is no other way. Like how how can you not see this? But trying to remember your origin story, trying to remember there was a time mm -hmm. when you two, you know, also had this cognitive dissonance. And it takes time. My parents no longer eat meat and dairy. Oh, yay. You know, it took 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> but we got there. So sometimes it's a long game too, right? <laughs> now, now I'm curious. I'm curious and I'm I'm half joking with this, but um was it was it a case of that they saw something else and they were like Hey, Vicky, guess what? Did you know that veganism is this, that, or the other? <laughs> I, I'm not half joking, but I can imagine. When I started working at the Humane League UK and I was starting that organization, I was doing a lot of press. And so there was a lot of articles. My parents were kind of bombarded with information if they wanted to read the articles. And like, okay, well, we can't really deny this any longer. <laughs> it became like a very much for them, like an obvious thing. I um, love it. I love it. So that thing, that brings us to the organization, to the Humane League. And I know that you have a history with them, not just as the president and, you know, starting off in the UK. But before we even get to that, could you tell us a little bit about the mission uh, and a little bit about the background on the Humane League? We work to end the abuse of animals raised for food. And um, we do that by getting institutional change. We go to massive companies corporations and get them to improve animal welfare in their supply chain. So by going cage free or improving the welfare of chickens reared for meat, we really take on the systems where there's the greatest suffering first, which is laying hens and chickens reared for meat or otherwise known as broilers. And we also do corporate uh, lobbying work, excuse me, where we push for legislation. So here in the US, pushing for statewide legislations. Unfortunately, there is no federal legislation currently for animal protection for farm animals. Um, and then we also do some um, advocacy on individual diet change as well. And I mentioned the eating uh, veg um, page that we have, and we do adverts and, and other things to link people to veganuary and other resources um, for reducing their meat consumption. And then as far as I know, there's a lot of ground has been laid with this movement over the years. And I'm just going to talk about the last six years, because that's the time period that I've been involved, um, heavily involved within the community. Can you go over, because you can look, somebody can look at the big picture and feel a, little, a lot of doom and gloom, because no matter how much progress is made, animals are still suffering, animals are still being slaughtered. But with you guys being right on the ground floor of everything, what were some of the highlights or some of the successes that we can at least, you know, celebrate that have happened in let's let's say the last five years? Well, for starters, we just got statistics today that we are now forty percent cage free for laying hens in the U.S. and that change yeah. has happened from being stagnant at four or five percent before we started this work to now we're talking, there are 300, over 360 million laying hens in this country every year used. Um, and now we have over 120 or million of those out of cages, and more than that, that's bad maths. <laughs> it's more than that now. Um, but yeah, 40% of those animals are now 
you know, out of cages, thanks to the work we've been doing. Oh. And I think people can say, well, they're out of cages, but they're in other systems. And absolutely. But there has been work to show that the level of suffering, the, the reduction in suffering is so huge for these animals. There's a 65% reduction in suffering mm -hmm. by moving these birds out of these tiny battery cages where they can't even spread their wings into cage-free systems that allow them to move and lay their eggs in nest box and do other things that are super important to them that in a cage, of course, they're completely fine and can't do anything. And we are part of the Open Wing Alliance. We founded it as an alliance uh, back in 2015 and now we have five over 500 members around the globe and they are all working to end cages for laying hens worldwide and it's amazing we have thousands of commitments around the world and we are heading towards a future where there are not cages for laying hens and that to me is incredible and we know that that there's so far to go in dismantling factory farming but there is change happening. We have statewide bans um, in 10 states now to end cages for laying hens, as well as ending um, confinement of sows in, in gestation crates and veal crates as well. This is huge progress. So it can feel like very overwhelming looking at the extreme level of suffering and number of animals we're talking about, billions of animals every year suffering in these systems. But Thanks to the work we're doing and other work that other, and others that are doing in the animal protection movement, we, you know, we're a coalition, we're working together on this. We are making a difference. We are beginning to see real tangible change, not just companies committed to say they're going to do welfare, but actually following mm -hmm. through on those commitments and removing cages completely. And, and thank you for sharing that. And that's a huge progress. I mean, from what did you say, like 4% to 40%, like the jump? from when you started yeah. to where we are today, that's huge. That's something to definitely celebrate. And we all know that there's more work that gets to be done. And at the end, we'll talk a little bit more about how people listening or watching can get involved and show their support. One of the things I do want to jump into is the fact that you have experience as both the president currently and a managing director, correct? And in the UK. Yes. And, it, and for me, I had the opportunity last year for the first time to travel to the UK and spend a couple spend a couple of weeks out there and see firsthand everything that I've been reporting you know here from high on my desk in South Florida about all of the advancements and it's it's one thing to talk about it but the other thing to actually see and what really struck me was it wasn't that there were any I didn't really feel like there was any more vegan restaurants or anything like that than the other places. But what really struck me was that I could go into almost any fast food chain and see a menu that's strictly vegan, like a Domino's, Pizza Hut, Subway, all these different places and have like a, almost a full page of vegan options and that vegan society seal on there. And that's just that's just so cool to see. So with that being said, can you let us know a little bit about some things that are ha that have happened in the UK that you may have had a uh, hand in supporting so that way we can see what may be in the future or on the horizon for the US. Yeah, thank you. Yes, it is amazing to go into those restaurants, isn't it, and see all those menus. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's like another world. It's wonderful. Uh, yeah, so uh, I helped um, start up THO UK back in 2016. And it, we started by, well, we came to the UK because there was not a bad cop. So our approach is to name and shame companies that are committing animal cruelty in their supply chains. 
And so I used to work at Fashion World Farming and I was kind of the good cop. So I would go to companies and, you know, offer to help them in making progress for animal welfare. And that's great. And you absolutely need that. But you also sometimes need like the bad cop that's like, well, if you're not going to do it, we're going to have to tell your consumers exactly what you're up to. And we're going to name and shame you and throw blood on your logo and put it out there. And we're going to make sure that you, you know, you realize how important it is that you need to improve welfare in your supply chain. So we, Cage Free was more advanced in the UK at that time. But we then ended up, uh, like the first few campaigns we did were against the biggest retailers, the supermarkets, and getting those commitments through for the supermarkets to go 100% cage-free. And now those supermarkets over the years are now nearly at 100% cage-free or already there 100% cage-free. Yeah. And that's been amazing. And we got the largest producer in uh, the UK to also go cage-free. And they're like one of the largest producers in Europe, I think. So... That was amazing too. And from that work, because we've got all these companies committed to go cage-free, we're now working on legislation. So we're working towards getting cage-free legislation, which is in our theory of change. We work on getting the companies to commit and then to solidify all that, hold those companies accountable. And then for any smaller companies we may not have been able to target because they're so small or whatever that might be, get in legislation. Another piece of work that we worked on was the Better Chicken Commitment, which is to improve the welfare of, of chickens reared for meat. So currently chickens grow so fast, it is so detrimental to their health that they have severe lameness, they have white muscling disease, they have woody breast syndrome, they have ammonia burns on their skin because it struggle, they struggle to get up. So instead they have to just lie on their own excrement on the, in the barns that they're in. And there's tens of thousands of these birds in a barn at a time. So we're working to improve those conditions, to improve slaughter conditions as well. And we got KFC to commit. And I think when people think about chicken, they think about that's one of the first companies they're going to think of. So that was huge for us, a really big win. And we've got you know hundreds of commitments since then as well. And off the back of that work, we also started now three years ago, something called a judicial review. So you can hold the government accountable if you believe they're not upholding the law. So we, DEFRA is uh, the department that looks after agriculture and fisheries and the environment. We, they are meant to uphold the legislation and we have legislation in the EU and also in the UK that says that birds or animals should not be reared if their genetics or phenotype impacts their welfare. So that means their genes or the appearance of their gene, the appearance the genes give causes impact to their welfare. Well, the chicken, broiler chicken is like the epitome of that, right? Their genetics, they have literally been genetically selected heavily to grow as quickly as possible so that they can be slaughtered within six or seven weeks of age mm. instead of 16 weeks of age. If they were a baby, within two months, that baby would just be the size of a tiger. That's how quickly these birds are being made to grow and mm. to the detriment of their welfare. And so we've been in court and Sean, who now is the managing director in the UK, has been there. And it's me as a veterinary witness putting that case forward. Unfortunately, while, you know, only 10% of cases go to the Supreme Court. So they took it seriously, which is amazing. Again, right. like a real first for animals that they can take it to the Supreme Court. It's really serious. But unfortunately, they deemed that there wasn't evidence enough that you couldn't grow a fast growing broiler in good environment conditions and then it would not suffer. So we're going to 
oppose that and trial again, appeal that and try again and see what happens. So there's that. And we've also started working on fish legislation. So working to get stunning for fish before slaughter. There's a huge salmon industry in, in the UK as well as trout industry. And we wanted to start work that started getting people to think about fish and caring about fish because we all know people just think, oh, 10 second brain, or oh, three second brain. I don't even think it's a 10 seconds. You know, and that's just not the case. Fish are sentient beings. They use tools like they, you know, they're, they're incredible. And so we wanted to do something where we thought we can start talking about fish and why they matter in the press. And that's been going really well. And that's gone to consultation right now. And we're waiting on that consultation coming back. So we've done several things I'm super proud of that the team are now, you know, team continue to do. They're an amazing team um, and they've done incredible things and they continue to do incredible things now. We want to hear from you. Visit our website to ask a question, leave a comment, or tell us how much you love the show. We'll play some of your messages during the episode, as well as directly to our guests. So be sure to leave your name and city and visit SoFloVegans.com slash podcast. And have you seen any carryover, anything that was developed during that time or is being developed that would be applicable to the United States in terms of maybe pushing towards legislation and moving in that direction where it's not just state to state? Yeah. So, I mean, right now we are going to stick with state to state just because there is not really the leverage to go federal at this moment in time. But certainly it's the same theory of change here. And as I mentioned, you know, cage free is also gained huge momentum here. And so we expect companies to follow through on those commitments that they're, they're due by the end of 2025. And we're also going to be doing similar to the UK, like how do we get pieces of legislation that would allow us to just like cement everything forever? <laughs> um, mm. And so, so we are doing that similar work there as well. We also have been doing a better chicken commitment here in the US. We had these running at parallel times in Europe and over here in the US. Um, and so right now we're focusing back on cages because those commitments are coming through and then we will continue to focus on chickens reared for meat as well. And certainly both organizations, well, we have THL in the US and, and in, in the UK, like sharing resources within the Open Wing Alliance at large. The reason the alliance is set up is so that organizations around the world can share their learnings, share resources and learn from each other, like what works. So take in the Czech Republic, there's a group called Obraz who are amazing and they've got cage-free legislation now. They like literally just like uh-huh. went in for the kill and got it. And it's, it's incredible. So we can really learn from different different uh, countries around the world with different organizations as to things that are working and, and what we can do. And I, w- I would assume that your some of your biggest obstacles would include like the lobbyists for the meat and poultry industries and whatnot. So how, what does that look like? I know, I know we hear a lot of stories where there's a lot of special interest and things of that nature. How does a nonprofit organization or rather nonprofit organizations compete against that sort of financial backing and power? Yeah, <laughs> we are definitely taking on, I mean, the these companies are, they have so much political power as well as just money for advertising and marketing and all these other things. And so I find our, our work incredibly inspiring when I see that we 
as a you know very very small organization comparatively to these huge companies can take them on by getting our supporters to get involved and take actions on social media or phone the company or sign petitions or do protests we do sign protests to uh, companies that has a lot of leverage and causes the company a lot of headaches <laughs> um and we don't go away we're not going to back down like this is when we start these campaigns we know we know what we need to get from these companies that said like i said they have huge political power tyson for instance the biggest if not one of the biggest if not the biggest uh, i think it's the biggest chicken producer certainly in the us one of the biggest in the world they are very unwilling to make change and they are creating a huge amount of problems because even if we have companies like you know su- like supermarkets for instance that who want to make this progress if the producer so tyson or jbs or someone has more power than they do it's harder harder for them to get what they need from those companies who are unwilling to change so we have definitely experienced challenges here we do tyson is you know I would say undoubtedly one of the most challenging companies on the planet in terms of the political power and how much they lobby the government to have very little regulations for instance and they use that political sway to make sure that they aren't held accountable for the abuse they're causing to animals and they create agag rules like like those laws that are coming that don't even allow people to show the conditions that are happening on farms Mm-hmm. because they're so scared that if people see these conditions they might actually not want to consume their products rather than be like oh this is what our this is what our shed looks like this is what our animals look like no go ahead you can show these pictures no they don't want to do that they're scared that the public will finally see the reality of the systems these poor animals have to live in in terms of these companies like Tyson and other companies purchasing vegan brands are working with vegan brands to help them scale. You know, I've seen a couple of them. I don't know if it's um I don't know if it's Tyson, but I know a couple of brands have come out. What are your thoughts on that? Because in the circles that I'm speaking with and even my own curiosity is like what is the transparency behind what is now happening to these products? And does my contribution to these brands also help the bottom line of the chicken that they're selling. I'm just interested to hear your take on that. Oof, this is a tough one. Uh I think there's several truths here. One is that it can only be a good thing that more plant-based products are on the market and a good plant-based product. We don't want bad plant-based products. We want good plant-based products on the market. If these companies with their huge budget have the ability to, to have food techs create great plant-based food that's amazing and we should celebrate that and we should encourage it and hope that they see well that we know they put profit above everything else they certainly put profit above animals they put profit above people about the environment so if they see some profit being made there's a good chance that they will continue to invest in creating plant-based options things that people want to buy etc I don't know how that translates to the animals that are in their systems. I imagine if they're making a lot of profit, they have a lot less ability to push back and say we can't afford to make the changes you're asking for animals because they're clearly I mean they're always making an awful lot of profit. So there there is that. And apart from me wonders if they were really looking into like business 
sustainability and business longevity, which I think some people do, not always, they would see that plant-based is good for the environment. It's much more sustainable. They'd be able to choose their, you know, be able to achieve their um, their goals and sustainability much more quickly if they remove animal products within their supply chains. And, you know, labor laws need to improve generally. And so labor practices, but it would remove people from some of the most horrific things they have to work on, which is in slaughterhouses, killing literally thousands of animals every hour, mm. um, which is, you know, when you interview ex-slaughterhouse workers, that's traumatic for them. So it removes that. But of course, it doesn't protect them against other labor issues that we definitely find. And they'd see that like having farms with animals in factory farms is a huge risk to the business. Mm. They have a risk of avian influenza outbreaks. They have a risk of being found to be producing antibiotic-resistant bacteria on their farms. There's like a lot of risk in these factory farms, a plus being exposed and being labeled a terrible company and all these things. So I'd like to think these companies have some form of forward thinking and they're like, this should be the future and we need to take people there so that we can also remove risk from our, our company and be better sustainability and all these things and make profit. The anti-catalyst in me <laughs> probably feels a little different or finds it a lot more tricky to want to engage with companies that cause so much abuse to animals. So <laughs> I'm really answering you again the fuller's answer, but but I do think, I really hope it's a good thing that they're engaging in plant-based and that they are going to move away from using animals in their supply chains and that we have a plant-based future. That mm. would be ideal. I, do, I, do I think that's happening anytime soon? Probably not. Do I struggle if I go to say, for instance, Burger King have committed to go cage-free. They've committed to go to better gene commitment in the UK. They also done a huge campaign on their plant-based burgers. And like you walk down every, you know, any street and you'd see like they plastered the walls with the new vegan Whopper that they had out. And that was for a long time that they did that marketing. And part of me thinks it's fast food. It's like, is this the thought we should put like, but at the same time, they're actually putting energy into spreading our message and that's yeah. pretty amazing so it's tricky <laughs> i think that's the perfect answer it's tricky you know but i i appreciate the the first answer because it it makes me realize that a lot of that is just coming from um skepticism and just not trusting these big organizations especially even outside of the industry, like what you see with pharmaceuticals and things of that nature. It's like, but at the other piece of it too, it's like from a business perspective, they're hedging their bets. You know, they're looking at the, I'm sure they, with all the money that they're making, they have people, researchers who can see the writing on the wall and say, we need to get into this space. Even if it's a small department in the back of the building, we don't want to be playing catch up with our competitor doing the same thing. You know, I, 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 I hear what you're saying and I'm glad that you, um, you provided both sides of that as well, because there's always going to be that little angel and demon on your shoulders telling this sounds good. It sounds too good. Um, <laughs> that is exactly it. <laughs> um, so, so shifting gears more into the advocacy side of things, and we talked a little bit about compassion earlier, and our listeners know that's my favorite topic. That's why I'm personally vegan to 
practice the act of compassion on a day-to-day basis for others as well as for myself. What are your thoughts in regards to burnout? And especially with activists, I've seen in the last half a decade, I've seen a lot of activists come and go. It's not because they've lost their their interest in protecting animals. It's just, it's a lot to take on your heart, not even just from the animal's perspective, but just from the interactions you have with people who aren't open to hear or understand. They just, they are coming from a place of judgment in terms of don't, don't attack my lifestyle. So with all that said, what is what are some of you, what's some of your advice for people who may start to feel burnout from being an advocate? Yeah, this is such a real risk and has happened to all of us, I'm sure. And when people start working at THL, I will say that you know you've come. Often people have come; they've done a lot of activism, and now they've got a job that includes activism in the job. Like it, it's. The job they've always wanted they've always wanted to be able to work in something they believe in and that's the difference right like you've got you're now spending an awful lot of energy working for something that means so much and you can see the extreme level of suffering all around you and it feels like sometimes you can never do enough mm. and I think it's taking a step back and realizing you're one person <laughs> that this isn't always like this is not all landing on you know, your individual shoulders alone, we're, we're in this together. Change does happen and it's always slower than you want it to be without fail. It's always slower than it should be or needs to be. And to remember you're important too. And we often forget, I think, in these moments when you think about the suffering these animals are enduring every day that I shouldn't take a break. Like they don't get a break from these systems. They don't get a moment. I think you can be the best advocate you can be by being well rested, by spending time with loved ones so you feel connection and you don't feel a disconnect or compassion fatigue that often happens. I think finding like-minded individuals is incredibly important. I moved to California like a year and a half ago. And uh, for me, it's very important because of the work I do to also have a friendship group that understand the way I look at the world. And so I prioritized finding friends who also, you know, believe in animal rights and are advocates for animals. And that really helps. That's not the case everyone can have in the area they're in. And I appreciate that. But there's online community as well. So even if, if you can't find it in your actual immediate vicinity, there is online community too. Um, and we have change makers, for instance, at THL in different cities around, around the country where you could meet like-minded people and get involved. And that can be really invigorating for people. But I, I go back to the self-care, mm. self-love that you should have for yourself. For me, I've gone through this cycle quite a bit myself. And I now recognize the things that I stop doing when I start going towards burnout. Mm-hmm. I start, I stop meditating. So I'm like, I've got too much to do. I'm not going to meditate. I'm, I'm not going to do yoga. I'm not going to go and do the climbing that I love. I'm not, I'm going to work all these hours instead. And then very quickly, my mental health uh, declines, deteriorates. And I, then I struggle sleeping and all these other things that come with that. And then you start feeling yeah, compassion fatigue and all the other things that go with that too. And yeah, I, I think my biggest thing to have uh, to 
Others is to really find the things you love and invest in those things so that when you come to doing the advocacy, you can turn up as the best person that is needed in that moment. Because I am, if I work a weekend and then work a full week and then work, I am not going to be great that following Monday. There's no getting away from it. I just, I'm not. And, and we can tell ourselves, well, I'm still plowing through, but actually you often make poor decisions and you often, uh, you know, are not as t- articulate as you want to be, or you, you know, you make rush, rash decisions that if you take more time, you wouldn't have made if you were less tired or whatever it might be. So yeah, I think it's really important to self-care and to find connection with others. And those two things really help, help you for the long haul. And we talked about compassion and one of my other favorite things to talk about is community. And I feel like community is not brought up enough in this space because as for all the reasons that you just mentioned, you can feel alone. You can feel like you're doing this by yourself at times and being able to even just express how you're feeling with someone who can relate because you could even like, even if you have friends and close family members, you know, if they're not in this lifestyle, it could be hard to express kind of what you're going through right now because it's it's sort of a unique situation. And being able to have other people where ho- hopefully you're not even in the, in that space where you want to, you know, vent. You're just having a good time at a potluck or a festival or whatever the situation is. And you mentioned the program that you have. What are some resources that you know of that people can tap into to find communities because they'll be they might be surprised there there might be a community in their area and they just don't know of it so do you have any tips for them yeah uh we if you go to the humaneleague.org and go forward slash take hyphen action i think that's right um then you can find our fast action network but you can also find volunteering and when you sign up as a volunteer we have organizers in different regions around the u.s um, we also have this in the UK, if you're listening in the UK, um, and, and they will assign you to like, to the, depending on where you are, you'll get assigned to an organizer and they're, they're wonderful and they will connect with you and connect you to change makers. So our change makers are volunteers in areas that organize, uh, meetups or protests or action parties. And in some areas where we don't have change makers, we have an online presence as well, where you can get together on an online call it kind of like an action party where we all get together and take actions together for animals and it's just like a lovely community where you can you know feel like you're making a difference making you know doing actions but at the same time share in like you say sometimes it's good to vent every now and then yeah. <laughs> um, and sometimes you just need to connect on like things just that you care about deeply and and there, there is something strong about finding joy I really mm. believe that like the finding joy and the community is is so important in this work to keep you able to go to deal with the the horrors that we also know about. Finding that joy is really important. And in segueing into another topic that may not be joyful for a lot of people, but it is also extremely important, the environment. And, you know, lately, maybe the last couple of years, I've been hearing more and more about the connection of veganism and the environment and so i just want to spend a little bit of time talking about that because i know you your organization also looks at that as well 
what is that connection for people who may not be aware of it? Yeah, there's many connections. I mean, you can just take greenhouse gases, for instance, from agriculture. So looking at all looking at all greenhouse gases, 14% to even up as high as 51% are coming from um, animal agriculture. And that, of course, has implications for climate change. But just more generally, factory farming and farming of animals is consistent in, in polluting the environment from the air, in the land, in the sea. When these systems, I, I mentioned there's tens of thousands of animals in a, in a relatively small area, a very small area if they're in cages, uh, they produce a lot of excrement that's like high, high nitrogen levels, phosphorus levels, and that gets leaked into the environment and that pollutes the waters, it creates algae blooms and that kind of thing from the high nitrogen levels in the water. We can look at antibiotic levels in those areas as well. They're higher, antibiotic resistance, excuse me, bacteria in those levels is higher as well um, because antibiotics are used heavily for keeping animals in factory farms and some resistance happens from that in terms of the food these animals eat. So if we take fish from the ocean and the they're catching, a third of the catch, the wild core is used to feed factory farmed fish as well. Mm. Uh, it also is used to feed hens uh, because of the amino acids that they want to get, the omegas, sorry, they want to give the hens in their food or the chickens. And then we look at deforestation in the Amazon, and that's been proliferated by the drive for soy, which goes into animal feed. So the vast majority of soy that's produced is, is given to animals mm. that then produce meat. It's so inefficient. If we were to cut out the animals in this we could massively reduce the amount of land we need to produce food for everybody and in doing so protect the rainforest or create more biodiversity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the list is fairly endless as to the environmental impacts that factory farming has in the near vicinity. We've just got an, a documentary out, uh, The Common Enemy, based in Oklahoma, which, you know, depicts exactly all the terrible things that pig farming is doing to that community and has done to that community in terms of pollution to the land and to the water that these people consume in Oklahoma. So it impacts people in it here, but also in climate change and more broadly around the world, because you may be eating chicken reared in the US, but that feed is probably coming, is possibly coming from the Amazon, mm. may also be coming from the US too, we produce a lot of soy here in the US as well. But certainly in Europe, that's a lot more the case that the feed is coming from over in the Amazon to feed those animals than it is being produced in Europe. So yes, it's a very long, long list of reasons how the environment is damaged by factory farming and by going plant-based or even reducing consumption, the impact you can have to environment is huge. And, and that was going to be my next question. Like, what could somebody do to combat against that? And you answered it, just adopting a plant-based diet. And, and yeah, it's staggering it's, it's to hear that and then see the conversations that are happening regarding the climate and not hear about animal agriculture I mean, and this was probably pre-pandemic, so I'm curious, um, has that changed or is it still pretty much the same where um, animal agriculture is not really brought up as a leading cause? No, I mean, it isn't. We, we try. You know, there is plenty of research out there that we talk about it. Other organizations talk about it. 
there's currently a bird flu uh, epidemic right now. And that bird flu has a risk to be the next pandemic, mm. a serious risk to be the next pandemic. And, and yet still, no one's really addressing that <laughs> what we need to do is end factory farming. That's how we reduce this risk. We need to have, you know, there's 9 billion chickens being slaughtered in the US alone every year. That vast population increases the risk of mutations happening with avian flu exponentially. And so until we end having factory farms, we're going to be at this risk of another pandemic. And yet we talk about it. Other organizations that are in animal protection or the environment or human may talk about it. But in general, I don't think people realize that. So with that being said, let's let's shift to solutions and what the Humane League is working on as we wind down the podcast. What are some of the initiatives that are out there right now that people can get involved in and what are the ways that they can get involved? We're currently doing a global campaign against Jollibee uh, to get a cage-free commitment worldwide from them. They own many different companies around the world. And so we're, we're campaigning around the world with our organizations as part of the Open Wing Alliance to get that commitment. We're also holding companies accountable to go cage-free. So back when we started this work 10 years or so ago, companies made commitments and now they need to follow through. We need that 40% to obviously go up to 100%. And so we're campaigning against companies that appear to be stagnating and not making progress towards that commitment right now. And we're also working on the EATS Act. So right now, the, the what was previously a King, King's Amendment is now being put through as the EATS Act. It's basically trying to undo uh, the statewide legislations that we have that protect animals from being in cages, for instance, with Prop 12 in California. But it goes much broader than that. It includes like puppy mills and it would also include like banning, banning of cosmetic testing on animals and those kind of pieces of legislation. And they're trying to bring that through. So right now we're writing to our legislators, getting people to write to their legislators to tell them like, this is super important. This should not happen. This can't happen. It will impact so many pieces of legislation around the US. Um, and it's important that we need that, that it's not put through. So we're working on that. And, and that's a coalition effort that we're working with many organizations around the US in, in trying to stop that too. So there's plenty of ways to get involved. We have the Fast Action Network. So again, going to get involved on our website, join our Fast Action Network, and you'll see there we have two minute things, they literally take two minutes that you can do on social media or write to your legislator. We have like the ability to show you how to do those things. We give you all the tips and what to write. So you don't have to do a huge amount, but you being the individual that's making the outreach to those companies or to your legislator makes a huge impact. And so just with a few minutes a day, you can make a huge impact and, and push these companies through to improving the conditions of animals in their supply chains. And where give them one more time the website where they can go and so how they can find you on social yeah thank you it's www.thehumaneleague.org forward slash take action and you can find us on social media the humane league we're there everywhere instagram facebook you name it we're there you should be able to type that in and find us so i just want to personally thank you and everyone at your organization for the work that you do like i mentioned before we've had an opportunity to work firsthand with you guys and to see that the passion and the consistency of what you're doing is definitely needed not even just yes definitely for the animals but for humans as well 
if you're not interested in, <laughs> in being an advocate for the animals, we get to live on a planet that is not killing us. And I always tell people, the planet's going to be fine. It's just going to reboot itself and start again from scratch. We're the ones that are in danger. So if you if your only reason for adopting a vegan lifestyle is that, then take those steps. Go to those resources and figure it out. And then the last thing I want to do is another segment that we have on our show, uh, the book end to our podcast, and it's called A Moment from the Heart. And it's an opportunity for our guests to just say what's on their heart. And it could be any message that they want to deliver to our audience. So I'm essentially going to hand over the podcast to you. And when you're, you feel complete, then that will be the end of the show. So thank you so much for, for being a guest. And the floor is all yours. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, I just want to say, you know, you said you got involved with THL many years ago and led to this. I think that's a really beautiful story. And I'm, I hope that people listening to this podcast feel infused to get involved, to know that they're not alone and that we are making a difference for the world. And we will, we will win. We will win for animals. That's the right thing and it will happen. You've been listening to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. As you can see, our passion is to help people navigate the vegan lifestyle. Having on vegan experts from around the globe, Sean is the founder and, of course, the host of SoFlow Vegans, an organization created to help make South Florida a global hotspot for veganism. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, find us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at SoFlow Vegans. Find the show and more at SoFlowVegans.com slash podcast. And for questions or comments, send an email to contact at SoFlowVegans.com. Our food is grown, not born. See you next time.